Welcome to Don't You Lie to Me. <laughs> okay, let's go. Don't you lie to me. I'm gonna have another drink. Don't you lie to me. Explain that to the kids. Don't you lie to me. Okay, let's hear that story. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Don't You Lie to Me. I'm your host, Jeff Bell, along with our producer, Warren Hicks. With this podcast, we're exploring the visual art scene in North Carolina by bringing you interviews with artists and arts professionals throughout the state. We also want to highlight some current exhibitions that we think you should check out. Today, we're going to talk to our own Warren Hicks, which is crazy. He's got a show currently installed at the Cube at VAE. You can find out more about his show at e1ev1n.com. That's 11, but it's spelled differently, e1ev1n.com. You can also find out more at his website, warrenhicks.com, or you can go to our website, which is don'tyoulietome.com. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Our Twitter feed is at dyltmnc. Enjoy. Previously on Don't You Lie to Me. Have we started recording, Mark? I have to be an artist. I'm sorry. I'm going to be poor. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And, uh, I'm horrible. <laughs> so I, I, it's it's not, not, not well, maybe. Oh, mm. at some point I was talking to Tumbleweed and I asked him where Cowboy Bob was. <laughs> I mean, it was dickweed. Um, I mean, he's an <laughs> asshole, but most people are when you get down to it. They started laughing. <laughs> <laughs> Am I getting paid for this? <clears throat> uh, he's the something at the whereabouts. I think you made that up a little bit. Eventually, the hostages were on the moon. Wow. Sorry, let me back up. I was probably just going to start peeing my pants or something. Mm -hmm. All right. It is, but less less charming and more shit. Did you, were you? Well, I was a country music singer, and I was in a graffiti gang. That's when I started skateboarding. Hmm. The, the, I don't even know where, I don't know how to say it. Undoe. Undoe. <laughs> <laughs> damn it, Warren. <laughs> oh, damn it, Warren. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you ready yeah hey warren hicks hey jeff bell we're real excited that warren is stupid enough to let me talk to him on the air this is awesome <laughs> well we're excited to talk to warren today we're going to go through all the normal things and we're also going to talk about a show he has already installed but has yet to open at vae raleigh yes it's in the cube Hey, Warren. Hey, Jeff. You're from Chickasha. You pronounced that correctly. Did I? It's, that, it's not spelled like that, though, right? No, it is. How do you spell it? C-H-I-C-K-A-S-H-A. Chickasha. And that's in Oklahoma. Chickasha, Oklahoma. What's that all about? It's home of the fighting chicks. I like that. Yeah. And your father owns a western store yeah it's western wear and uh, a lot of work clothes i like work clothes you know he has a lot of oilfield workers ranchers so that's kind of his clientele now you wear anything like that around the house nope no no 
Did you I wear, used to wear cowboy boots. What about little cowboy outfits? Did you ever have those when you were little? Oh, hell yeah. Oh, man, I used to love that sort of thing. Boots, the hat, oh, man. the belt buckle. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's good stuff. Oh, yeah. Can you get me some good belt buckles? No. <laughs> when And you grew up there until you were 18, I'm guessing. Yeah, until I went to college. Um, you went to State. school? Oklahoma State. The running rebels. Cowboys. Yeah, that too. Close. <laughs> yeah. Real close. Uh, so you went there for design. Architecture. Architecture, same thing. Yeah, well, it's designing something, so yeah. And uh, did you ever do anything with architecture? I did later on in life. I had one studio design class in architecture and fell in love. It was it was great. Like you realized that you'd rather be doing that. After that, I realized that I'd probably rather be in the music business. That you, We just came from nowhere. How did music filter into that? Well, music was always my first love. Yeah. I know you like the Beatles. I do like the Beatles. Mm-hmm. Um, so instead of doing homework, I was reading Rolling Stone magazine mm-hmm. or reading liner notes. Right. And the architecture program at Oklahoma State, it was a five-year program, and at the rate I was going, it would have taken eight or nine years. <laughs> and I'm like, all right, is this something I really want to do the rest of my life? Right. Architecture. And so I answered that question. It was like, no. And I wasn't quite sure what it would be. But I did take a 3D art class Mm -hmm. and loved it. You're talking about sculpture? Yeah, it was. I mean, it was... Real real art is what we call it, Warren. Sculpture, real art. It's a diversion (laughs) from 2D, but yeah, sure. (laughs) Um, So I go home after for the summer after my sophomore year. And I'm like, I think I want to switch majors to art. And my dad was like, no, there's no future in that. There's no right. career path or whatever. And I'm like, okay, well, fuck it. I'm going to move to Miami and see what happens. Yeah. Do you have a dollar in your pocket? I had $400 in my pocket. It still ain't that much, more than a dollar. Uh, not much. Yeah. So I had a friend from high school call me up and said, hey, living in, I think it was Delray Beach. Mm-hmm. And come down, you can stay with us in our apartment. We'll get you a job at the restaurant. There's beaches, there's women. I'm like, okay, give me four days. I got to finish. <laughs> I got a job. I'm finishing up. Right. And, uh, and I think it was like four days. And then I had my car packed and told dad I was going to Florida for the summer and never came back. How long did that summer last? 13 years. <laughs> I think up until like 10 years, he kept saying, well, he went to Florida for the summer, but he hasn't come back yet. Finally, finally he realized like, like eh, I don't think he's coming back. And so how did uh, working at the restaurant translate to the music business? It didn't. Well, actually it did. It was, uh, was kind of like a Friday sort of thing, but they had a stage and so they would have bands on Friday, Saturday nights, mm-hmm. like the four tops and you know, all these bands. There's like maybe one living member. Right. And, um. Uh, uh, the DJ had to be gone for one of the weekends. So he's like, why don't you sit in and do sound? And I'm like, yeah, absolutely. I had no idea what I was doing. Mm-hmm. And the band figured that out too. Not happy. So I almost, after that summer, I almost moved back home. But then I met this girl. And I'm like, eh, okay, I'm going to stay a little longer, but I better get a real job. And then I got a job because the family business was clothing stores. Mm-hmm. So I grew up working in a clothing store when I was like nine, I was sweeping floors, et cetera. 
so I got a job at Lord and Taylor. Oh, well, pardon me. And the family was like, yes, you're going to, you're going to go far. You're doing, you know, you're working at a legitimate company. Right. So I did that for about a year and then I saw... Were you dressing spiffy ever that year? I had to wear a suit every day. Wow. Yeah. I would have liked that. Oh, I know you would. And then I saw an ad in the paper for a position at a record store for a manager trainee. And it was a big chain, like 62 stores across Florida. I'm like, that's what I want to do. So I told my family I was quitting Gordon Taylor and they just lost their shit. Mm-hmm. You're going to go work at a record store? Yeah. And... Don't you know it's all going to um, MP3s? Is that what they told you? Yeah, back in 85, no. Oh, okay, never mind. It was right when CDs were coming in. Mm-hmm. So I get the job, free concert tickets, backstage passes, and uh, free records. Yeah, I was in heaven. Mm-hmm. And then got promoted to manage their flagship store in Miami, and I hired my future wife, Martha. Mm-hmm. Got transferred across the state. So I did that for probably five years and eventually ended up at an import distribution company. Uh-huh. That's always what people say when uh-huh. they're up to no good. Import exports. Mm-hmm. And eventually uh, the owner and I started a music biography publishing company. So we published the first Nine Inch Nails biography, Tori Amos, The Doors, Pearl Jam, it was that period. You got a lot of different kind of things going on there, Warren. Oh, yeah. Yeah. All over the place. That's not that's not like just like one type of music. No. Did you meet Tori Amos? I did. How was that? She's sweet. Mm. Mm. Okay. Easy on the eyes. Uh, there you go. Yeah, it was right before her concert, and uh, that piano bench had no idea what was getting ready to happen <laughs> to it. <laughs> did you meet uh, Trent Reznor? Never did. I bet he's an asshole. I heard an interview, and he seemed like an okay guy. Never mind. Forget what I just Lenny said. Lenny Kravitz was an asshole. Yeah, that probably makes sense. Yeah. Peter Gabriel was awesome. Now, that's amazing. Very humble, down-to-earth. Very cool. Um, so that's one of the highlights from that period. Peter Gabriel. Yeah. I would have liked to meet him. I don't think he would have liked you. I don't think so either. Yeah, I wouldn't. So what made you leave? Did you do anything after that in, in the Florida? I just got burned out. Um, traveled the world, which was great, uh, traveled the country, but living out of a suitcase and just hotels and airports. Yeah. It, uh, yeah, it took its toll. I got just totally burned out and Martha is like, quit and do what? Mm-hmm. She's like, I don't know. You'll figure it out. Yeah. So I did. I gave a three months notice to help sort of shut down the publishing end of it and try to make it easier. So when I left, it would be an easy transition. And, um, My graphic designer, her fiancé at the time was doing uh, computer drafting, converting blueprints into digital files. Mm -hmm. He's like, if you learn AutoCAD, then I've got a job for you. I'm like, all right. So I did taught myself AutoCAD, and uh, he hired me, and we were doing city of Gainesville, Florida. We had their blueprints for all the sewage systems, the water systems, and we just basically trace them in AutoCAD, mm-hmm. and uh, now you can scan it and convert it easily. But at the time, that's what it was. So I jumped right out of the music industry right back into architectural drafting. Did you live in Gainesville? No, never did. This was when I lived in Miami. Hmm. And then... You moved to South Carolina. 
Yeah, Martha grew up in Miami, and I'd lived there long enough. Uh, it's just the rudest city. It's beautiful, but it's challenging to live there. Mm-hmm. So she got a job in Columbia, South Carolina, and we're like, yeah, let's get the fuck out of here. And then after a year and a half in South Carolina, we were like, yeah, we got to get the fuck out of here. <laughs> but in the meantime, I got a job at an architecture firm, and they were doing you know million-dollar homes. And so I was drafting for them, and little freedom there, little creativity, but it still wasn't what I wanted. There was an itch. And so I started teaching myself Photoshop and playing with digital designs and things like that. And I'm like, yeah, okay, this is closer to what I want. Then Martha got the job in uh, Cary, North Carolina. And so we moved to Chapel Hill. What made you move to Chapel Hill? I looked around Raleigh and at the time, I mean, this was in 2000. Wasn't a lot going on in downtown Raleigh. Cary, call it scary. I'm sure it's a lovely place to live. (laughs) Um, I'm not so sure of that, but yeah, no, I'm not either. (laughs) And downtown Durham in 2000 was a ghost town. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that didn't seem right. And (laughs) that didn't seem right. right. So when I was in the music industry, you know, you read billboard magazine and all of my favorite bands would be playing in a cat's cradle in Chapel Hill, but none of them wanted to drive all the way down to Miami Mm -hmm. unless you're Madonna or Gloria Estefan. I think it's Estefan. Yeah, because that, that is an important distinction because her music sucks either way. It's the Miami Sound Machine. I know. So the music, you saw, you saw that music was happening in Chapel Hill. So I knew it had a music scene, and so I drove to Chapel Hill during her interview, and it just felt right, so that's where we decided. Mm-hmm. And moving here for her job left me without a job. I'm like, all right, do I go back into or stay in architectural drafting? Uh, Well, graphic design might be a direction. but So I had no idea. And for the first time, I felt, I guess, out of control. Mm -hmm. She was making the money, and I I was just lost, really just freaking out. I don't know what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. Um, So I I had a moment, and then we went to Jerry's, and I bought a bunch of supplies. For some reason, I don't know what. What made me do that? And then went home and started painting. And That's called fate, Warren. Fate. And so I started. <laughs> <laughs> so I just started painting, and it was like, okay, yeah, this makes sense. This is what I need to be doing. Uh-huh. So that was the start of my visual art career. Because mm-hmm. I'd been writing music, writing my own songs, and recording them in a home studio. But I knew that wasn't a future. It was a creative outlet. Mm-hmm. So... Visual arts just hit me in a totally different way. Right. I guess it was around that time that I met you, I'm going to think. It was right around there, yeah. Yeah. Installing artwork. You Installing were art for Peter, and then he introduced me to uh, the Nasher Gang, and mm-hmm. uh, that's how I got into museum installations. And you like that kind of thing? I love that. I love that thing, too. I mean, it's, it's taught me so much about uh, the way you present your art the way you don't present your art, mm-hmm. framing. Yeah, it's been invaluable in that sense. I wish every person that made art would go in and be a part of that even one time to see what they're dealing, what the other, what everyone deals with. I mean, I don't, they have no clue. Yeah, you don't use bailing wire to uh, <laughs> hang your painting. I've seen some amazing things on the back of a painting. Oh, duct tape, you know, it's, it's kind of terrifying. Right. 
I mean, I didn't go to art school, but it seems like you should have one class on how to prepare your canvases, how you to prepare no, your work for installation. No, Warren, no. Th that is way overthinking it. They don't got that nowhere. It's a dream I have. Don't shit on it. It's really, it's really ridiculous that they don't, but it should be. We, now, I had a... Um, I actually had a painting professor. She didn't get into like the hanging, but she would do all the old school stuff. Like we would have to prepare a canvas with rabbit skin glue oh. instead of gesso, like the old masters. <laughs> <laughs> and, but never like putting a hook on something, how to hang it on the wall. <laughs> yeah, no, that's secondary. Yeah. So the first things that I saw were paintings. But since then, you've done everything imaginable. If someone was to say, what kind of artist are you? What would you say? What would the first thing that comes to mind? Well, now it's at the point where I'm a multimedia artist. Okay. Because um, for the longest, maybe the first 10 years of my visual art career, I was I just identified as a painter. I'm an abstract painter. That's what I do. I need to focus on that. I want to be good at that. Um, and it wasn't until probably four years ago, so 2013, Heather Gordon and I went to... Uh, New York for eight days to cat sit for Beverly McGeever. She had an apartment up there at the time. And Heather and I spent eight days going to galleries, going to museums, and just talking about art, sharing ideas, thinking up collaborations. But the most important thing I walked away with was defining myself as an artist and not a painter. So if I get an idea for a stuffed animal sculpture, I'm going to run with that. If I have an idea for a drawing, I'm going to do that. I want to start looking at photography more seriously. So that was a huge jump for me. Mm -hmm. um, just being open to any idea and then trying to figure out how to accomplish that. Right. It, that presents its own sort of challenge, obviously. You, I know you do photography or and drawings and those sorts of things. Do you ever feel like by jumping around you don't get to focus on one enough to get to a certain point? Or do you feel like you can jump around and tell your story in the way that you want it to? I mean, I used to think that you had to do one thing to be good at it, to get great at it, mm -hmm. to master that medium. But if I'm chasing ideas, the idea is more important than the material. So I no longer... I don't believe that, that you have to just do one thing to be good at it. I think if the idea is strong enough, it will force you to be good at the execution. Right. If you want to, I mean, I'm a perfectionist, which is a curse, but it makes me try harder, especially in a medium I'm not familiar with. Um, and I think if you're challenging yourself, that in itself will make you a better artist. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? I think that makes sense. Makes sense to me. I think no one else will understand what you're talking no, about. No, of course not. But this this makes a lot of sense to me. So I um we can get into the, all of the different sort of phases of your art making, but I also uh because I know you fairly well, I know a lot about your personal history. Um uh, where you grew up and your parents and your family. Talk about a little bit about that. I know fairly fairly early on, your your mother and your father separated. Is that right? Yeah, I think I was seven when they divorced, and that was tough. But I knew that there was problems early on. 
even and before that you even were, before that because you would hear hear the fighting and uh my mom is has schizophrenia and that was the bulk of the problems was everyone aware of that at the time yes i wasn't but my dad i think he spent eight years taking her to different doctors doing different treatments uh just going above and beyond trying to help her mm -hmm. get better. And it's, you know, it can't happen. You can take medication to calm things down a little bit. So that was, that was tough. Not just the divorce, but learning about her illness and uh, how it affected everyone around her. Right. And it affected my relationship, um, just my relationships in general, because she would come home from six months of treatment in a hospital and then uh, I would as a baby I would reject her because she abandoned oh, me wow. and then we would get you know I'd kick her and scratch her and then we'd get close again and then they would send her off to a different facility wow. and, uh, you know she even did electroshock therapy and just all kinds of crazy shit right so that was tough and it's definitely a hereditary thing um Growing up, even into my 30s, I knew there was something wrong, and I just kept waiting for that schizophrenia foot to drop. Because I think up until you're like 30, early 30s, if you get beyond that, then you're in the clear. Right. Um, so that was always a big... Like you, for a long time, you thought that this was going to come on. I, I thought this might be the early stages, or... Um, yeah, I lived in fear of that. Was it based on the way you felt or just a fear in general? No, it was definitely based on the way I felt. Um, I would go through long bouts of depression and it was crippling at times. And I just didn't know. Every time it would come on, I'm like, all right, this has happened before and it's passed. It's going to pass again. But the fear of the schizophrenia always was just nagging me at the back of the neck. So in 2002... Uh, when I had my little breakdown and bought all the paint supplies, I was finally diagnosed with bipolar, mm -hmm. which is the fancy word for manic depression. Um, and then once I realized what those symptoms were, I could trace it all the way back to my childhood. And like, that explains everything. So you could see that throughout your whole life. Oh, absolutely. Um, now I just knew the symptoms and how to identify it. And then it just made perfect sense. When you get told something like that, obviously it, it ain't real cool to hear that sort of thing. But in a way, does it sort of, is there a sort of an appreciation for knowing what you're dealing with? Oh, yeah. There's a sense of relief. Yeah. It's like, okay, I'm not crazy. Well, I am, <laughs> but now I know what it is. It has a name. Um, I know the symptoms and I can identify it. So, yeah, it was a relief in a sense. And how is managing that? It's, I mean, it's challenging. I mean, I still struggle with it. It's funny because when I first went to the therapist, he's like, just want you to know off the bat that I'm not a big fan of, you know, medications. And so you left that guy right away. Immediately. <laughs> he's like, you know, I'm not a big believer in that. So just wanted to get that out of front. And by the end of our first session, he's like, okay, we need to get you on some medication. And here's the doctor <laughs> you need to call. And, uh, how soon can you get here? I'm like, yeah, okay, let's let's try it. 
But at the same time, I had just started painting, and so I was terrified that the medication would flatline me Mm -hmm. and it would kill the creativity. So I worried about that for a while, but that hasn't proven to be the case. Right. I think a lot of people that that concerns them about um, psychiatric medications, that it somehow removes this creativity. The thing with bipolar is my mom's sister, so my aunt, she's also bipolar, but much more severe. She's been hospitalized on multiple occasions. Uh, so I'm fortunate that mine is not to that degree of severity. Mm-hmm. But it's still a nightmare to deal with. Right. How do you think that impacts your work? Uh, that's a good question. Um, if I'm really inspired by something, I have the ability to just hyper-focus on it. And like getting ready for this show... I've got a deadline. I know what I need to make. And so the mania kicks in, and that's all I'm doing, just focusing on that one thing. So the mania is productive, but it's also exhausting, and I don't recognize it until I'm out of it. Mm -hmm. And then it's sort of like, okay, let's go back and look at the carnage. How many people did I piss off? How many opportunities did I blow? Whereas depression, you know you're in it. You recognize it, and I've been trained as like, okay, what triggered that? Mm -hmm. And so you kind of backtrack it. Right. The mania, it's always after the fact, when the crash happens. Um, So you just finished installing this show. Yes. Last week. Oh, big crash. Big crash? Big crash, yeah. Because the mania went right up until I finished the lighting. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, this is done. Everything's up. Now what? I think a lot of artists feel that, but I can't imagine it being even heightened. I mean, I think I know when I put up a show afterwards, I have this huge letdown. But to 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 have that overly exacerbated, I can't even imagine. It's. I mean, Martha's great. She's like, just you know, it's coming. You know, it's happening, or that's where you are right now, and. But it's still there. You're just able to recognize it and try to manage it. But um, you just have to find the new thing to focus on. Otherwise, you'll go crazy. Mm-hmm. So the new thing is what? This podcast? This podcast. Make it great, Warren. Make oh, it great. I'm going to try to make you sound good. <laughs> Never, that's impossible. impossible. Let's do a, a break. Say so we're going to go into a break. Okay. Hey, Warren, do you mind if we take a quick break? Oh, my God. That would be awesome, Jeff. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Real Kitty Kitty Litter is the first and only all-in-one pet kit. Are you tired of having to make two trips to rescue a new cat? We thought so. First, you have to drive all the way to the shelter and then off to the pet store. To hell with that. Real Kitty Kitty Litter comes with a free kitten in every box. You're welcome. Hurry now while supplies last. Seriously, hurry. Real kitty kitty litter. Meow. Hey everybody, it's time to get off your ass and go look at some art. And here's some of the things you might want to check out. Harriet Hoover, she's got a show at Waterworks Visual Arts Center that's in Salisbury, North Carolina. That show is from February 11th to May 20th. 
and it's called Mama Spacin' again, Drawings and Sculpture. Check out Waterworks' website at waterworks.org. Heather Gordon, who was featured in our third episode, has a new incredible installation in the basement gallery at 21C Durham. That's called Echo. Uh, Also a part of that is a performance piece by Justin Turnow, who is a local choreographer and dancer. She reacts to Heather's work in an incredible video, so go check that out. And now for some shameless plugs. I have work in an alumni invitational. That's at UNCW Art Gallery, and that runs from February 23rd through March 31st. That's in Wilmington, North Carolina, in the Art Building. I also am working on a collaborative piece along with Megan Sullivan. That will be at Art Space, and that will begin first Friday, March 3rd. Take that out, please. No, that's staying. Okay, cool. And we're back with Warren Higgs. Oh, hi, Jeff. Thanks. I thought we were uh, done. Oh, well, we could be. Please? Let's continue. Eleven. So let's talk about that show. What um, what inspired this show? My first documentation was almost exactly two years ago. You know, I look at my phone to check the time or I look at a clock. For some reason, I'm obsessed with time. I kind of need to know where it is. And I kept seeing... I just want to stop you. Time no, is, please. Time is an abstract. Oh, you just blew my mind. <laughs> Every time I would glance at, not every time, but I would often glance at the clock and it'd be one eleven or 11-11. And it got to the point where it was happening too frequently. And I'm like, all right, I'm going to start just documenting. So I would notate the date and the time. And after about 30, 40 occurrences, I'm like, all right. So I started doing uh, screenshots on the phone, capturing the wallpaper or whatever, just so I didn't have to write the date down. Mm-hmm. And then eventually it got to the point I would include things that were happening in my life in the phone. So if I'm in the middle of a text message, I would do the screenshot of that at 111 or 1111. And at the time, I had no idea. I wasn't thinking, oh, this would be a great show. Um, I just kept documenting because I was obsessed by it. And then it was uh, Carrie Alter last September. Because I would always share this obsession with my friends and you occasionally. And <laughs> Carrie was like, this should be your show at the Cube. And uh, so I thought about it. And I'm like, yeah, absolutely. Why not? And so that was like a month in, or a year and eight months into the documentation process. So I wrote a proposal, sent it to uh, VAE, and said, I want to do this instead of my original. And they're like, go for it. That's awfully nice of them. Oh, they're horrible people. But mm. in this one instance, they were like, they must have Super been confused. Cool. I think they were all drunk. <laughs> Catch them at happy hour. You can get away with anything. That's true. Yeah. So you've taken these uh, these screenshots. What do you do with them? So the iPhone screenshots, I decided to enlarge them so they're nine by five inches. And Is it like twice? Twice as big? Easy. Okay. Yeah. So they're enlarged, so they're easier to read the text messages or the whatever the alerts are on the screen at the time. Mm-hmm. And so I printed them out, mounted them on black foam core, and then cut out 190 prints. How many did you actually need for the space war? You had to ask that question, right? 
So I get to the gallery and start laying it out with Heather Gordon, who was kind enough to uh, offer her assistance. And we get halfway around the gallery and we haven't even finished the first box of prints. And I'm like, okay, I think we have a problem here. (laughs) I should have done more math, but so ended up using 121 out of 190 prints. Can I have one of the extras for free? Oh, absolutely not. Oh. So then you had to kind of curate what you've got. How did you select the ones you went with? Um, well, it turned out to be a huge blessing because there there would be one image with just the time, 111 or 1111, multiple times, different dates. And so I was able to cull those out. Mm-hmm. And I it's a much stronger show now. So the only what you're saying is, that, like, if I took a a picture today with my phone and one tomorrow, and I haven't changed anything, the only thing different is the date. Exactly. So if the image was the same, you could pull it out. Right. And at a certain point, when I started including text messages or other elements of my life inside the phone, um, those started happening towards the end of the preparing for this show. So because I was able to pull out a lot of those earlier images there's more meat to it than just the visual. I mean, I guess there's no real answer. Why do you think you locked in on those numbers? What is that about? I don't know why. I mean, they just started appearing uh, and it's so frequently I just kind of latched onto them. So when I look at the clock or the phone and it's one eleven or 11-11, it's a moment that I look forward to. And it's like, okay. So I, take the screenshot and try to be aware of my situation, what I'm doing at the moment. So that's what it's become for me. So I saw you do that today. I did. So you are, this isn't a completed project. No, this will probably go on for the rest of my life. Now I know that I have, when I run across it, I screenshot it and send it to you when I see it on my phone and I think other people have started doing that too. Yes. Do you I'll, save all of those things? I'm starting to. And so I don't, you have not saved all of mine? If I really wanted to scroll back, I could find them. And what do you think about that? I mean, I think it's cool that when I first talk to people about this project, they're either going to say, oh my God, I keep seeing those numbers too. Or like you, they start sending me screen captures of their experience. Right. And the only rule is it has to be a random glance. You can't look at the phone at 110, right. wait for it to change to 111, and then capture it. Yeah. That's my self-imposed rule. And so when someone like Heather started sending me her screenshots, I'm like, yeah, that's really cool, but I can't use it. Right. So now I've set up a Twitter account for 11, and I'm starting to post my friends' images that they send me. I mean, I think it's really cool. I mean, I I think about you, Warren, all the time. But when I look down and see my phone and see that number because of this project, you know, I immediately think about you, which I think is cool. Anything I can do to make people think about me more? I know. I'm all for it. You need it. I do. So this show, what are the dates for the show? It opened on March. This is February. This is February February 1. Oh, jeez. So February 22nd. And it goes through April 8th. And it's in the Cube Gallery inside VAE Raleigh. And it's a 19-foot by 19-foot space. 
A cube. A cube, if you will. Mm-hmm. There's also a First Friday reception on April 7th. And you're going to do like a talk. On April 8th, mm-hmm. that's Saturday at 1.11 p.m., I will be doing an artist talk. What time was that? I missed that. That was 1.11 p.m. <laughs> Can I come and ask difficult questions? Oh, please. I don't think I'm smart enough, but I'll come up with some basic questions. That would be awesome. I'd be glad to hear you come up with a good question. <laughs> it hasn't happened yet, no, but, but I'm bound to come up with I, one sometime. That's my dream. As you mentioned before, Heather Gordon helped you install some of the work. Thank God, yes. And I know in the past that you have helped Heather with some installation work. Yes. I'm about to be nice to you, Warren. This goes against everything I stand for. I'm, I'm going to just say it's probably because you want something. No, it's, it's not. Need a favor? Probably. Hmm. But I am always impressed at how much you do for other artists as far as installing and packing and all of those sorts of things. I think, uh, especially in this area, artists are extremely supportive of one another, but you are extraordinarily supportive. All the work you've done with Stacey Kirby, uh, all those sorts of things. So I I just think that's amazing. I'm just going to say that. People help me out too. Well, still, you're extremely generous. You're kind. No, Not really. Not really. No. Now, um, you don't know that we're going to do this, Uh-oh. but in uh, preparation for this little conversation, I have reached out to several of our friends oh. for questions. <laughs> oh, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I have heard from our friend Heather Gordon that we just mentioned that growing up you had a nickname. What was your nickname? Bones. What is that about? Just being skinny. Being skinny. Mm. She also told me that you won an award for being the most Jesus-like in summer camp. Close. Most Christ-like. Oh, well, that's even yeah, better. Yeah. Why Let's is that? that straight. That was my first year at church camp, which um, I did not know one other person, so I was just shy. Yeah. And I don't know. I was... So at the end, they're like, oh, we have this award ceremony. I'm like, oh, what's that about? And then right. most Christ-like. Oh, yeah. That's sweet. Yeah, family's not going to believe that one. <laughs> it's like when I got home, the the preacher announced it at the next service, and it was like just a hush came over the room. People in shock that that actually happened, did, I think. Did people tell him to fuck off, that he's lying? No, I told him to fuck off. Okay, cool. It just seemed like the appropriate response. Always, always the yeah. appropriate response. Brandon Cordry. Oh, God. Well, first he says, why are you such an ass? And he says, don't actually use that one, but I wanted to say it anyway. Oh, well, that's nice. Um, He kind of touches on a a few things that we've talked about. He says, you use a wide range of media. How do you begin a body of work? Is it based on a certain material or process, or is it that you choose an idea to focus on and then select the media? I think the media finds me. It's the idea that comes first. But with the stuffed animal sculptures... um, those can be idea-driven, where I have the idea, then I go out and find the materials, find the right stuffed animal, the props. Or I can be walking around the thrift stores, see an animal that inspires an idea, then I start looking for the props and figure out how to do it. So it could be one way or it's the It's one other. way or the other. Now this is related to something we, maybe something we said, talked about earlier. 
Alicia Lang asked, when someone says to you, shock the monkey, <laughs> what's your first thought? Well, it's Peter Gabriel, but <laughs> yeah, thanks, Al. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't know if that really warrants it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, think, I think I've answered that one. Uh, I, I missed one from Brandon. He also asked, how did you get so pretty? <laughs> I, I shower twice a week. Good man. Yeah. I've got a whole bunch of questions from a certain Rachel Herrick. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. She's horrible. Yeah, she is so mean to you, and it is wonderful. And I'm just nothing but nice to her. I don't, that I just not, don't understand it. It is not true. The, she starts out by saying, Some have said that you owe your entire artistic career to Rachel Herrick. What would you say to that? Bullshit. I thought as much. No, okay. I will give her some credit. Really? But I'm going to edit this out. Okay, cool. But I won't give her full credit for that. No, you shouldn't. That would be very wrong. Let's see. Well, I'm going to skip the one that says your face. What's the deal with that? <laughs> um, your studio is a destination for many Third Friday goers in a large part because of your bar set up in hospitality. How did that get started? I mean, was that a conscious thing to kind of make your studio a hangout space? And I should say your studio is at Golden Belt in Durham. At Golden Belt? Well, when I moved into the bigger space, um, I wanted a place for my friends to come and hang out or someone who's wanting to engage in discussing the art. Would you like to have a drink? You know, it's like feel relaxed and stick around. You don't have to just kind of run out. Mm -hmm. When I decided to do the bar on third Fridays, it helped open me up and become a little more social. I got to meet people, spend more time getting to know them. And another great thing about that, I get to introduce a lot of people. So to help make connections happen in my space is, mm -hmm. uh, I love that too. It's pretty fun. I tell everyone I see, Go to Warren's studio and get a bunch of liquor from him. That's is why that the, what I should be doing? Yeah, No, because the bar is pretty dry right now. Oh. I'll still keep saying it. Um, her last question is, in addition to being an artist, you also have a very cool art collection. How do you decide what work to buy? Why do you think it's important to purchase art? Damn you, Rachel. She's smart. Okay, if you say so. <laughs> I mean, it's the way that I hope people buy my art. You look at it and it immediately grabs you. It says something. You don't have to figure out what it says at that moment, but this is something I could look at for the rest of my life. Right. And if it's something challenging where you can keep looking at it and seeing different things, then that's, that's great. It just has to talk to you. I don't know. You don't know. I don't know. I just feel honored that you let me sometimes go in there and look at them. I have a Jeff Bell sculpture, too. You do? I do. It sits at the bar with the bourbon. Good man. Yeah. That's where it should be. Absolutely. It feels right at home. And I have a Warren Hicks. Ooh. Yeah, it's true. Well, thank you, Warren. Well, thank you, I, I Jeff. I can't believe you allowed me to talk to you like this. I can't believe you talked to me like this. I won't ever do it again. Thank you. I love you, Warren. Love you, too, Jeff. Bye. Bye. Are you tired of using those trendy dry erase boards? We thought so. Maybe it's time to reacquaint yourself with chalk. 
it's not just for outlining dead bodies anymore. You can write words or even sentences. You can draw pie charts or pie equations, even pie recipes. Oh, and you could take it a step further too. You can draw pictures of your freshly baked pies. Chalk, that's right, chalk. Ever try to draw on a sidewalk with a dry erase marker? It doesn't work. Hey, dry erase markers, it's chalk calling. Eat our dust. Hey there, Sydney Steen. Hi, Jeff. How are you doing? I'm great. And you're going to tell us today about subverbal. What in the world is that? Subverbal is an art collective that me and my friends, who all happen to be UNC MFA alum and current students, founded after we all went to Marfa, Texas on an art pilgrimage. And we went official in July. But what it was is we wanted to continue the connections we had in graduate school. And for those of us who are still in graduate school, establish a way to continue that conversation and dialogue and sort of environment outside of school. And what connects you other than that you went to Marfa? Well, we're all friends, which is convenient. We all wanted to stay in the area after we graduated because I think in Raleigh and Durham, and I guess in Chapel Hill too, things are sort of at the beginning it feels like, especially with these last few years of UNC students staying right. and wanting to start something, um, we realized this would be a good place to do it. You know, Raleigh, Durham's, it's close enough to where you could drive to DC and New York and you don't have to live there right. and it's affordable. And the art scene here is getting really crazy and funky and there's good stuff happening. So we wanted to be a part of it. And who all is in this group? Myself, Sydney Steen, my friend, Joy Meyer, who's sitting next to me, Aaron Kennedy, Allison Tierney, and Leah Smith, and Emily Smith. And those are all females. All females. Uh, not purposefully all women group, but it's sort of come out that way, and we've embraced it. Right. Especially with, you know, just everything that's been happening. We just really bonded by the fact that we're all women. Right. So now we go with it. Tell us a little bit about what each person does. I, myself, I make paintings and sculptures about geological landscapes that redefine what landscape is or how we move through it or how we perceive it mm -hmm. and how memory affects it. So through the lens of painting, I'll make abstract sculptures and paintings out of powdered paint or cornstarch or dyed plaster right. that sort of shift your perception of landscape or make you reconsider it. Mm -hmm. Joy. Hi, this is Joy Meyer. <laughs> Thanks, Sydney. <laughs> um, so I am in grad school still, so it's of course, my practice is changing, but right now I'm making painting and I do performance and I also do some video work. I think the video work really just records the performance, but I mainly make work about love and sexuality and gender, and that sort of comes out in a lot of different ways. Um, recently, I've been making a lot of paintings on velvet using bleach, so that's how I would describe it right now. Alison Tierney um, does mixed media collage and painting. She focuses a lot on the idea of the home and the domestic. And also her practice uses mostly all uh, recycled materials or previously used materials. And so how she can give new life or new meaning or new memories to them. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of her paintings are, you know, geometric, but poured paint, tape. Um, she does these collages too. Um, a lot about really the idea of repurposing materials in their lives 
and like creating new lives for them and acknowledging their past histories. Mm-hmm. Um, Erin Kennedy's focus is like through the lens of drawing. She'll do um, these beautiful drawings and I guess almost ice sculptures using graphite and bleach. And it's all about time and the cyclical nature of time and remnants. And so she'll do these suspended layers of graphite that as they melt, they create new drawings. And the melting itself is a sculpture and performance. Or she'll do these sort of stains and these ellipses of graphite. Meditative, really zen. They focus a lot on silence and space. Mm -hmm. I think they're wonderful. I love them. Yeah, they're amazing. And uh, Emily Smith... Yes. So Emily does um, sculpture using materials like ceramic, but also pantyhose, resin. Um. I think Emily's work is about the space between, um, it's about memorializing, I don't want to just say death, but it's about like how we treat the objects that remain after somebody has died and how we treat the body moments before death and after death. So she's kind of interested in that like, interim space between life and death and leah smith yeah she is all about material and acknowledging like just the beauty and like just the realness of the material so she'll do these large-scale carved wooden sculptures that are just slabs of wood and she'll excavate and she'll um, uncover like new life of material Mm -hmm. um she's woven together large tree trunks that she split and sanded and sort of refined in a way. Right. And she sews them back together or she'll, it's really just about acknowledging this, like the simpleness of the materials and just right. really celebrating it, I think. And what have y'all done collectively so far? Collectively, we've had a, an exhibition at the Alcott Gallery at UNC. Mm-hmm. Um, it was called Materialism. And Will Pardon, he was, he was an, an art historian at UNC and saw this common thread in our work about this reverence for material and either using it for its intended purpose or flipping it on its head. And so he created a show about our use of material and how we go the expected route and also the unexpected route, I think, with what we're given. We have a show coming up at the Visual Art Exchange in the summer called The Lived Body. Um, And Joy actually thought of the idea, so maybe you can describe where it came from, the idea of the lived body. So the idea of the lived body comes from um, the philosopher Merleau-Ponty's view on perception and how our experience with the world is so physical. And so I was kind of taking that idea to connect um, all of our work together and talk about the truth of the materials that we're working with and how we all kind of connect physically with the materials and then how we can kind of collectively connect um, through the thought of the body or thinking about the body. And it was kind of one of our first projects that we were working on together. So initially it was, I think, difficult to think about all of our disparate practices and how they could come together. But the longer we hang out, the more connections we see. So so subverbal, you know, we, we decided to stay in the area and become a part of what was happening. But a lot of it we focus on is our individual studio practice and being a support system for each other and providing critiques and criticism and helping each other write proposals and grants and that sort of thing, more of an internal thing. But um, externally wanted to be a part of what was happening in the arts community. So one of the things we like to do is utilize people that we know or local art historians or artists. And so 
we have a proposal where each one of us suburbal artists would make a piece or we'd choose a friend to then have a conversation with. And based on this conversation, whether it's art related or not, or whether it's about our shared practices or not, we would have a call and response. So if I were to make a piece and then the person that I was having conversation with would make a piece in response to that. For example, if we showed it in Durham, we would use Durham artists. We'd talk to people in the area and ask if they wanted to participate. But our idea is like to have it travel around. So if we were in Austin, we'd reach out to the Austin community. And so a lot of what we want to do with our exhibitions or even down the line with a studio space to bring in other people and have conversations with them rather than just being, it's us six, you know, right. making work. Yeah. <laughs> so so what, what about that trip to Texas? What was that? What do you think sort of solidified the thinking about doing this? Me coming in as an alum, and Allison unfortunately wasn't able to go, but me coming in and participating in that annual trip, the MFA program does every year. We take a different trip to a different city. And this year they're going to Marfa. And, you know, Marfa is special because it's out in the middle of nowhere. And, you know, it's a this town that's been really popularized by Donald Judd coming in and sort of making it his his space, right. you know, with the Chinati Foundation. But what's happened is all the artists who live there now, you know, whether it's for the Chinati Foundation or artist Nick Terry, or you see this community of people who've decided to move there and stay there, or people who make the trips out there. And it, I think it, us being there and us talking to the artists and us talking to the people at the Chinati Foundation sort of reminded us how important it was to have a community like that. Because, I mean, they're out in the middle of nowhere and people travel all over. Right. And so to see that happening based on conversations and like the shared whether it was for John L. Judd or, you know, what's happening now right. with the current contemporary artists who are there. I think it was nice to see the community, like, not revitalized because John L. Judd sort of came in right. to this existing town and made it his own, which is complicated and messy. But to see something change like that based on the presence of the contemporary art scene there in this tiny town in Texas, right. you know, near the border. Um, but also it was just the conversations we had there and sort of the rejoining of groups because I had moved away and some of us weren't in school anymore, so to, it was just a reminder that we still wanted to have those conversations that a lot of people that we were working with, right. we wanted to continue working with, because we all had the same sort of vision of what we wanted to do. Yeah. Well, I mean, what do you think, Joy? I think that the magic of the place, just to describe it, is this unbelievable, like, desert space with all of this, like, unbelievable, intense light. And to just be there in the power of this place with my friends that were artists, looking at this artist who also brought in his friends, like Dan Flavin, has a permanent piece there. Who are some of the artists? Um, Ronnie Horn, but contemporary, Nick Terry. But just so the power of this place just really opened up something in me. I'm a huge fan of the New York School, and I think the power of the New York School and how they were able to like have this incredible like work of art moment was that they were able to stay together and help each other and talk and think about art all the time and support each other. And I think that if I could have that kind of experience in my life, I think that it would, I think it would take my practice farther than I could go by myself. And I think that we all kind of feel have that feeling too. Yeah. Because it's more than just friendship. It's also about, also it's lonely to be a painter. So it's, <laughs> it's nice to have friends uh, that are also making stuff, too. So. Well, I guess, like, yeah. thinking about Marfa, but also going to UNC down the road from Black Mountain, you know, there was always sort of this presence. Robert Rauschenberg and Cy Twombly and, you know, 
going to UNC, we'd all, we always talked about it in that community and, you know, working under Ellen Slavic and this idea of the community and the, the art making outside of a classic university structure right. was just sort of heightened when we went to Marfa to see that existing somewhere else as well. Right. Yeah. And where can I find out about this? Do you have a website? We do. It's um, subverbalcollective.com. And so on our website, it's great. We have um, individual profiles for each of us where you can go and you can view a sample of our work. We also have a blog series that we've started where we do interviews with artists who are local and not local. Um, The first interview was with Travis Phillips. He now lives in Winston-Salem, but he went to UNC. We also have artist Katie Mixon that we're going to do a profile about coming up. But then we also, you know, have links to our individual sites, our Instagram, um, and then happenings around the area. So not just us, but what's happening in Raleigh-Durham. Very cool. Thank yeah. you. Thanks, Jeff. Don't You Lie to Me is physically sponsored by VAE Raleigh, a 501c nonprofit creativity incubator. You can find out more about them at vaeraleigh.com. We'd also like to thank Matt McMichaels for the use of his studio, Trusty Woods. Our theme song was written by our own Warren Hicks, and our logo design was created by Artsy Martha. Don't forget to check out our website at don'tyoulietome.com. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe and tell your friends and family to listen as well.